Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode. Today, we're continuing our series on defunct scientific theories. Today, we're exploring transmutation, which was a precursor idea to evolution via natural selection. Transmutation held to the idea that evolution happens and new species appear and go extinct. So what did transmutation get wrong? One problem is there was never a unified framework for how transmutation happens. In fact, as you will soon see, many arguments for transmutation rested not on real scientific evidence at all, but on theological, teleological, and unsound logical arguments. Many of the reasonable sounding claims of transmutation were never confirmed by any natural observations. Darwin, of course, knew nothing about DNA or genes, but the forces that cause species that are not well adapted to go extinct, natural selection, is accurate. And the genetic revolution that took place in the first half of the 20th century proved incontrovertibly that Darwin was right and far ahead of his time, and proved incontrovertibly that the various claims of transmutation, such as orthogenesis, have no grounding in reality. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I want to tell you that if you like this content and want to support me, you can check me out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. You can also find links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more by going to my YouTube channel and clicking the link in the banner that says support the channel. Okay, back to the episode. Transmutation can mean different things, but its biological definition is the conversion or transformation of one species into another. Now, I just did an episode on evolution and spoke repeatedly about how species change over time, but transmutation theory makes specific claims and assumptions about how species change that are definitely not true. In the first episode on debunked scientific theories, spontaneous generation, I talked about how science is a relatively new process, and one of the reasons our early attempts at creating scientific theories were unreliable was because of the corruption of ancient dogmatic ideas that shaped the way people think. And one of those ideas is what's called the Great Chain of Being. Philosophers, theologians, and naturalists from Aristotle to Thomas Aquinas to Carl Linnaeus all subscribed to this idea. The concept has some variation between different thinkers, but what they all have in common is the idea that there are objectively better and worse types of creatures. But even non-living things were ranked. Rocks were better than air. Soil was better than rocks. Plants were better than soil. Insects were the worst type of animal, but better than plants. Then snakes, other reptiles, birds, mammals, apes, and humans topped the chart. Not really sure where fish go, but you can look into it yourself. Theologians would insert angels and the choirs of angels as superior to humans, with God being at the top. This hierarchy inspired naturalist thinkers to imagine that organisms desire to change. Evolution is good. It allows the lowly snake who crawls on his belly, definitely the worst form of locomotion, to eventually transmutate into a lizard who has legs and is therefore superior. I hope you can see how transparently shallow this reasoning is. Ah yes, the animals that have the most in common with us are the best, because we are the best. Why? Because we say so. The ability to write poetry, build skyscrapers, or fly to the moon is not a good metric to determine biological success, 
but humans are conceited and not very capricious, so the idea stuck around. It's still popular to this day. I cannot even tell you how many times I've debated this line of thinking. If evolution is true, then why aren't the other animals becoming smart? Last time I checked, the number of DUI deaths is humans, a lot, all other forms of life, zero. I'm not sure we are the smartest, but I won't bother you with my personal debate grievances. There is a name for the process that is implied here. It's called orthogenesis. Orthogenesis is the idea that organisms and their descendants evolve so as to progress toward an ultimate goal. In philosophy, we call this teleology, an explanation for something which is a function of its purpose or goal. Now, I'm not saying that transmutation theory was a religion. I do think it was shaped by a religious worldview, but it was a scientific theory. So what was the evidence? The only real support for the theory comes from a naive reading of the fossil record. Before we knew anything about the true age of the Earth, before Darwin published On the Origin of Species, it was known that there were periods of Earth's history when life was very different. The fossil record clearly shows that life was relegated entirely to the oceans early on, and the first large animals were relatively simple sponges, echinoderms, which would include urchins, sea stars, and more, and arthropods. Vertebrates appear, but again, only in the water. Eventually, life makes its way to land, but it takes on the form of creatures nobody has ever seen. Enormous reptiles, including dinosaurs, pterosaurs, and plesiosaurs, grace the land, sky, and waters. Fossils of giant mammals, including ground sloths, mammoths, bizarre ancient rhinos, and more were discovered in more recent layers of rock. Life had been different in the past, and the organisms of today did not exist in the past. So the idea went that the reason the fossil record shows stages of life is because life was trying to become the life we see today. This is, once again, a theological interpretation of the evidence. But to be fair, this is what the evidence looks like to anybody who knows nothing at all about genetics or how heredity in general works. The most famous proponent of transmutation was Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Lamarck, born in 1744, died 1829, was a French biologist who took the mainstream ideas about the fact that life appears to have changed over time and why it changes, and developed a theory on how it happens, albeit still mostly incomplete. According to Lamarck, organisms can acquire new traits through the use and disuse of their organs and pass these traits on to their offsprings. For example, Many cave-dwelling creatures do not possess eyes, or if they do, they are withered, non-functioning remnants of a true visual organ. Lamarck says that because the eye was not used or exercised in the cave, it gradually withers generation after generation. The most often cited example is the giraffe. The giraffe has a long neck because past generations tried every day to reach as high as they could for leaves, and so the overuse of this organ led it to become exaggerated, generation after generation. This sounds fairly reasonable. Now, in science, we don't say something is true just because it sounds good, or because the premises seem reasonable and the conclusion logically follows from those premises. And we don't throw things out just because it sounds silly or contradictory. So I'm not going to end the podcast by saying Lamarckism is false. Goodbye. 
let's first discuss the experiments concerned with Lamarckism. August Weismann, born 1834, died 1914, was a German evolutionary biologist. Weismann was far ahead of his time. Decades before anybody knew anything about DNA, Weismann theorized that heredity is controlled exclusively by cells in the germline. That is to say, sperm and egg cells control heredity, and somatic cells, or body cells, do not. This is in stark contrast to Lamarckism, but Weismann's experiments nonetheless are still relevant. Weismann began with 68 white mice. He cut off all their tails and allowed them to breed. He kept doing this for five generations. The results? Mice born in the sixth generation and thereafter showed no structural changes in the tails whatsoever. There have been a lot of other experiments performed to try and prove Lamarckism right, but they all either failed to produce the same results when repeated by other experimenters, a fatal flaw for a hypothesis, were deemed to have poor experimental design or faulty control groups, or in one case, all of the data was lost in a fire. None other than Pavlov himself claimed that mice inherited the conditioned reflex linking food and a bell, but he later retracted his claim after the results couldn't be replicated. There have been cases of flat-out fraud as well. The most infamous was Paul Kammerer, an Austrian biologist who, in the 1920s, experimented on midwife toads. Kammerer managed to get the toads to breed in water, which they normally never do. This was done by increasing the temperature in their tank. Now, mating is a tricky business, but mating in the water for a primarily terrestrial animal is even trickier. Some species of toad get around this by having what's called a nuptial pad on their arms. This pad is sticky and it allows the males to hold on to the female, being that toads don't have thumbs. Camerer's water-breeding midwife toads developed black nuptial pads caused by being forced to mate in a different environment. Except that didn't happen. It was later discovered that Camerer injected his toads with black ink to fake the appearance of the pads. Tragically, Kammerer took his own life shortly after the word got out. So why does Lamarckism not work? Today we know Lamarckism fails because it is contradicted by the overwhelming evidence of genetics and evolutionary biology. Modern understanding of genetics has shown that traits are passed down from one generation to the next through the transmission of genetic information in DNA not through the acquisition of new traits during an organism's lifetime. Additionally, Lamarckism is inconsistent with the concept of natural selection, which is a cornerstone of the theory of evolution. Natural selection states that organisms with traits that are better adapted to their environment are more likely to survive and pass on those traits to their offspring, whereas organisms with traits that are not well adapted are less likely to survive and reproduce. Lamarckism, on the other hand, suggests that organisms can acquire new traits through their behavior and pass on those traits to their offspring, regardless of whether those traits were beneficial or not. Lamarckism also lacks a mechanism for explaining how organisms can acquire new traits in the first place. The theory suggests that the use and disuse of organs led to the acquisition of new traits, but it does not provide a concrete explanation for how this process occurs. That is what all arguments for transmutation lack. 
In contrast, genetics and evolutionary biology have identified specific mechanisms, such as mutations and recombination, that can alter an organism's genetic information and lead to evolution of new traits. You'd have to prove that the use or disuse of an organ alters the DNA code in sperm and egg cells in order to confirm Lamarckism. And while that hasn't happened, new revelations in epigenetics are giving Lamarckism a resurgence of sorts. More on that at the end. Lamarck published his works in the first decades of the 1800s. Before Darwin published On the Origin of Species, Lamarck's theory was considered the best explanation for why life evolved. But Lamarck wasn't the only believer in transmutation. In 1844, Scottish geologist Robert Chambers published Vestiges on the Natural History of Creation. Chambers' beliefs were vaguely similar to what we today would call intelligent design, which is the idea that life is too complex to have evolved naturally and must have been created by God, the intelligent designer. Although Chambers also believed in programmed obsolescence. The book also discusses stellar evolution in addition to the transmutation of species. While the book was a bestseller, theologians considered its theology to be terrible, and natural scientists considered the science to also be terrible. Chambers believed in what we call deism. He thought there was a god, and god created everything, but all things that happen are the result of natural law. God gets the credit for creating everything, and knowing everything that would happen, but miracles don't happen. This is where Chambers parts way with modern-day intelligent design advocates who insist that God created life whole cloth in its modern form, and then creatures go about reproducing more of their own kind on their own. Chambers just thought it began with the universe in general, and then the universe produced life on its own. Chambers thought that organisms went extinct because that was God's plan all along. The plan was, ultimately, to end up in a world populated by humans, the pinnacle of creation. Orthogenesis, teleology, great chain of being. It's all right there. After the publication of On the Origin of Species, Lamarckism and transmutation almost overnight became scientifically unaccepted. In the 20th century, as I discussed earlier, the discoveries of genetics completely buried transmutation and further vindicated natural selection. There were still people critical of natural selection, but these were religious zealots who did not believe evolution happens, be it a transmutation or whatever. But holdouts like Kammerer did stick around. Of all the adherents to a Lamarckian transmutation worldview, none was as diabolical or catastrophic as Trofim Lysenko in the USSR. Lysenko was the director of the Institute of Genetics within the USSR's Academy of the Sciences. Soviet Russia was a quasi-religious totalitarian dictatorship. The problem with quasi-religious totalitarian dictatorships is not only that it's difficult to pronounce, but it's their entire existence is predicated on ideology, not facts. Ideologies are rarely formulated in light of scientific facts and so they are immune to scientific facts. It is dogmatic, rigid, and authoritative. Soviets deeply rejected the idea of natural selection and Mendelian genetics on the grounds that it was too reductionist and had no social component to it, which is a necessary aspect of the collectivist communist doctrine of the USSR. 
thousands of biologists who believed in natural selection, Mendelian genetics, and the function of DNA were exiled, executed, or sent to labor camps. In an attempt to try and recuperate from the catastrophic administrative mistakes of restructuring the entire agricultural industry of the USSR, which led to intolerable famine, Lysenko employed pseudoscientific Lamarckian strategies, such as planting many different crops together in close proximity in an attempt to either hybridize or morph together their favorable characteristics together through some unknown force. He believed that grafting plants together permanently changed the heritable characteristics of the stalk, which is the plant you graft the other plant, called a scion, onto. This did nothing except waste time and energy and continue to fail to produce food. This continued for nearly two decades until, mercifully, Joseph Stalin died in 1952. In a remarkable case of poetic irony, famine elsewhere in the world has woken science up to a renaissance of Lamarckism. Sort of. At the end of World War II, Germany placed a blockade on the Netherlands, leading to a horrendous winter famine that killed some 20,000 people in a few months. Decades later, some astonishing population statistics were discovered. It turns out that the children of women who were pregnant during the famine were many times more likely than children born before or after to suffer diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular diseases, and more. The exaggerations actually go in the opposite direction that Lamarck proposed. A lack of something leads to an excess in the next generation in this case. But had the environment alone caused changes to heredity? In a way, yes. This is what is known as epigenetics. The children of these famine victims did not inherit genes for obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, nor did their DNA mutate into forms of those genes. In fact, there's no such thing as an obesity gene, like there is a gene for eye color, for example. Most of our traits are controlled by the complex interactions of potentially hundreds of genes interacting together. And so to understand something that is genetically and physiologically complex, like metabolism, it's more accurate to think of it in terms of gene expression. Epigenetics is a phenomenon that modifies gene expression. Your individual cells only utilize a microscopic fraction of your DNA. Only around 10% of your genome constitutes actual genes, but each cell in your body has a specific function, so they only use a fraction of that 10%. Which fraction of that fraction is used depends on regulatory mechanisms within the DNA. There are many regulatory mechanisms, but we only need to focus on two. Molecules known as methyl groups can, in essence, zip shut sections of the DNA deactivating genes present in that location. Other molecules, known as acetyl groups, do the opposite and unzip sections of DNA in order to access genes. What we have learned is that environmental stress can cause cascading chemical changes at the cellular level that open specific parts of the DNA and zip shut other parts, which in turn causes drastic changes in gene interactions and gene expression. During the famine, this modified the metabolic genes in the women's egg cells to make the body more inclined to suck every extractable calorie from food. In an environment where food is scarce, this is beneficial, but when the famine ends, food was no longer scarce. These epigenetic markers on our DNA 
are heritable, but they're not technically genes because genes are DNA. Hence the name epigenetics, which means above the genes. Again, this is not truly Lamarckian, but it's as close to it as does occur in reality. Let's conclude. Transmutation was a scientific theory or group of theories that tried to explain how life on Earth changes. While it is true that organisms evolve and change, transmutation theory was not based on sound scientific principles and was more so based on philosophical assumptions held over by theologians and ancient philosophers such as Aristotle. Most theories of transmutation completely lacked a mechanism for how organisms change. They only claimed why they must or want to change. Some transmutation theories, such as Lamarckism, did have supporting evidence for their claims, but lacked a concrete mechanism for inheritance. Later revolutions in genetics proved that the use of organs cannot directly influence the heritable components, that is, genes, that parents pass down to offsprings. I think that covers it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Don't forget to follow me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Links to support the channel can be found on YouTube as well. Yeah.